Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. A miracle. A miracle. Nine-year-old Charlotte, Charlotte Senna, has been found alive. I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Fox Nation and Sirius XM 111. Actually, that's the story. Charlotte is alive. But who, what, where, why, when? Take a listen to this. Just an incredible end to this two-day-long search. Uh, it was about 6.45 Eastern when we started to notice, uh, see police troopers leaving here where they have been searching uh, with their lights going, peeling out of here. And then we got confirmation from the New York State Police that nine-year-old Charlotte Senna has been found alive. They do have a suspect in custody. The case started to break at 4.20 a.m. this morning. When the family's home that was being guarded by state police, when the parents were still starting another day at the campsite where they'd last seen their daughter. 4.20 a.m., the car pulls up to a mailbox. Something is left. State police immediately go to the mailbox and identify what is a ransom note that he left behind for Charlotte. You are hearing not only our friends at NBC, but a presser regarding the discovery of this nine-year-old little girl found in a cabinet in a camper inhabited by the kidnapper. Again, thank you for being with us. Without any further ado, let me go straight to the scene. Joining me right now, Chris Eberhardt, joining us from Fox News Digital. Chris, thank you for being with us. What happened? Tell me everything. So, question. The, the police were staking out Charlotte's home while her parents were still at the campout, uh, scene. And that is when they, did they observe someone come and put something in the mailbox? What happened? Yeah, it, uh, I'm not 100% sure if it was the police that saw it or the neighbors that saw it. I, I got conflicting, um, messages from the residents. But yeah, apparently they, she, they, this guy put this, um, ransom note in the mailbox and they were able to use fingerprints and, uh, they hit back to a late 90s uh, DUI, uh, and that's how they were able to identify him. Uh, about 4.20 in the morning, he dropped that off. 4.20 a.m. in the morning, and that's just the beginning of the search that led to Charlotte Alive. Listen. State police worked diligently trying to find a match for a fingerprint. First one tried and wasn't successful. Second one was to identify any other prints in the New York State database that would be a match. The hit came at 2.30 in the afternoon. There had been a DWI in 1999 in the city of Saratoga. A fingerprint was found that matched what was found on the ransom note. So, no more research work to identify the location and identifying the fact that there was a home they could visit. They found a double-wide house with a woman, the suspect's mother. The suspect lived in the camper behind. 
What we are learning, this nine-year-old little girl was found hidden in a cabinet in a camper van owned by the kidnapper. His name, Craig Ross Jr., age 47. We believe he left a ransom note in the parents' mailbox. What does that mean? Had he been staking them out? Had he been stalking this little girl? Or did he just see her at the campsite and get the home address out of her? Uh, that triggered a SWAT helicopter rescue. Before I go to an all-star panel, I'm going to go back to Chris Eberhardt joining us from Fox News Digital. Tell me about the rescue, Chris. It, it was it's pretty wild. I, I talked to a resident. So the, the street that he's actually on, it's called Barrett Road. That that was blocked off. But right outside of there, there was a few homes. And I, I talked to one of the residents and they started noticing cops um, just kind of idling um, a couple blocks over from their house. And it was like two or three, and then all of a sudden an ambulance started coming up. Then they saw the chopper, and then all of a sudden uh, a whole bunch of law enforcement vehicles started rolling through their neighborhood. And they, at that point, they didn't even have to check the news. They knew that, you know, uh, Charlotte had to be close by, and this was all connected to that. Okay, hold on, Chris Eberhardt. You're giving me a lot of information at once. Slowly, tell me again what you know about the rescue. What time did the rescue go down? Uh, rescue went down uh, sometime in the evening, around uh, maybe 6, 7 o'clock. So it sounds like a convergence of SWAT, police cars, overhead, helicopters. Tell me again really slowly. And you're learning this from neighbors? Yes, uh, there, was, there's a, there was a couple neighbors that were in the area that spoke to, uh, to me real late last night. And they said that they started slowly seeing... Uh, a larger and larger police presence. Uh, there was a couple idling cops in the area, not really doing much. They thought it was out of the norm, but they didn't really think much of it. Um, then an ambulance came by, um, really around the same area. Then uh, later that evening, uh, that's when they, they don't remember the exactly what time, but there was a lot of um, law enforcement vehicles uh, roaming through the area, which is unlike that spot. Joining me right now, former Federal Task Force Officer for the U.S. DOJ, formerly with the DEA and the Miami Field Division, now owner and operator of Crispin Special Investigations at crispininvestigations.com, focus on former Federal Task Force Officer Robert Crispin. How did this thing, I know you heard everything that Christopher Eberhardt just said, interpret it for me decipher what the police were doing did you hear the neighbors say it started out very quietly with cops blocking off either end of the street and slowly slowly very quietly in the dark of the evening gathering forces and then bam all of a sudden there's the helicopter overhead there's SWAT there's crazy chaotic shambolic uh, proceedings going down. Explain what were they doing? So, so Nancy, the note was the beginning of the end to rescue this girl, and it's super glue to the rescue. And what do I mean by that? Because that note was put into a fish tank type environment in a lab. Slow down. Hold on. The note, the ransom note. Right. That we believe the perp left in the family's mailbox. This is important. Remember, the girl is swiped, kidnapped from a campground, and then the note isn't taken to the parents' car, back to the pa campground where we think they are waiting, but to their home. So he finds out the home address or had he been stalking the little girl for some time. Okay, so he goes to the home in the early morning hours. We think, I think Chris Eberhardt said around 4.20 a.m. Right or wrong, Chris Eberhardt? Correct. 
and leaves it in their mailbox. Go ahead. You said something about a fish tank. Pick it up right there. So in a lab, especially when you have ransom notes, you have notes that people leave when they're robbing a bank. You can take that note, which is paper, and you can put it into a fish tank type environment in the lab. And then good old super glue, the vapors, as they start to evaporate, will circle through the tank. And those will actually start to react and attach to the organic compounds of the fingerprint residue in the moisture. And lo and behold, a print will start to appear, which will then allow forensic investigators to take high-resolution photographs of that fingerprint and compare it in a system called APHIS. APHIS is a nationally recognized and a national database of everyone's fingerprints that's been arrested. And this is how this systematically started to break down and they were able to get a hit from the 1999 DUI. Once they had that, once they knew who it was, then they started going into locating where does that person live? Immediately, and I'm telling you, Nancy, from doing these types of cases, within 30 minutes, that house was surrounded by undercovers initiating surveillance. And then the rest systematically started to come together as they put a rescue team together. Now, we don't know what they saw when they were doing undercover surveillance there, but I guarantee you there was an undercover surveillance team at that location once they identified and had their man. Okay, so it goes from getting the ransom note, putting the note, as you say, and you know everybody's wearing gloves and picking it up with tweezers. That's real. What you see on TV and in movies, that's real. You pick it up with tweezers because even even with a glove on, you could smear a print. You don't want that. You don't want to get your print on it, so you wear gloves, but you don't want to smear the print that's already on it if the perp didn't think to wear gloves. So you pick it up with tweezers and you put it, as you hear Christmas say, into a fish tank environment. Now, and what I've seen is it is glass, so the scientists can see what's happening, but they put a top on, let's just call it the fish tank. So those fumes don't go out into the room. You need to keep it in the tank so it will begin circulating. As you see, let's just say smoke from a fire or a cigarette begins to circulate in the room. It does that. And right there, right there, Robert Crispin, the fumes from the superglue, the chemical in those fumes attach to what? They attach to the moisture and the organic compounds of a fingerprint residue. So they attach immediately to the oils, as he's saying, the organic compounds. No matter how dry you think your hands are, the oil in your hands leave a fingerprint. That's what leaves the fingerprint. It attaches to that. I don't know why. I'm not a scientist, but I know what happens. Then once it attaches, then what happens, Crispin? Then there's high-resolution photographs that can take a picture of that print and that can get inputted into APHIS, which is the, which is the biometric database in the world containing fingerprints from all kinds of criminal histories of everybody in the U.S. Almost like a DNA database. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. 
Chris Eberhardt joining us, Fox News Digital, along with Alexis Torreshuk, CrimeOnline.com. The first time they tried to get a match, it didn't work. What happened, Chris Eberhardt? The first time they couldn't get a match, uh, that I'm not 100% sure of. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, all I can know is that they got the DUI uh, from the 1999 one. It, it's okay, because the reality is... They did get a match, and there's a lot of explanations why they may not have gotten a match the first time, and it doesn't matter. Give me an example, Robert Crispin. There, You cannot get a match the first time. That's no big deal, because they got it the second time. So listen, so we don't know how many people touched this note before it got to the lab. So they may have, they may have tried to do a, a print comparison with two different prints that were on the note, one being the neighbor or the cop who handed the note to the technician because he wasn't wearing gloves. And now we have to do his fingerprints to do a comparison to discount him. There's a million reasons. But the reality is they got the print and they were right because that's where Charlotte was. So the fingerprint match was dead on 100% correct. Listen to this. They have what they call a dynamic entry, a tactical maneuver, and within the camper, they located the suspect. After some resistance, the suspect was taken into custody and immediately the little girl was found in a cabinet, covered. She was rescued and she knew she was being rescued. She knew that she was in safe hands. Parents were immediately notified. This occurred at 6.32 this evening. The suspect, 47-year-old male named Craig Nelson Ross Jr. is still being questioned. You are hearing more of that press conference where we're learning a lot of information and you can hear uh, Hutchell speaking very methodically and very slowly. What can I say? What should I say? What should I not reveal at this juncture? She's being really, really careful uh, and she should be dynamic entry. Does that mean basically Chris Eberhardt, Fox News Digital, they tore the door, they tore the door down. Dynamic entry. That sounds like, um, airbrushing. They tore the place up. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's what I'm hearing is that it was, it, it, it was a very, it was a fourth century. They, they got in there pretty good. What is it, Crispin? The element of surprise was on law enforcement's side and it was a dynamic entry with probably some flashbangs to stun the suspect give them the opportunity to get in, get him into custody before he could go for a weapon because his world was coming to an end as soon as they came through that door. Man, you're not kidding, and it should. Right now, we believe there is a charge of kidnapping that can be amended to add other charges. We're waiting to find out about that. But hey, Robert Crispin, not everybody lives in our world. What do you mean by flashbang? So flashbangs are a percussion um, device that are thrown into a building and it's a very loud explosion, a hundred M80 fireworks going off. And it literally, the flash and the sound stuns you and you just freeze. 
that gives law enforcement the edge of the element of surprise to take you down. To Francie Hakes joining me, former federal prosecutor, first ever national coordinator for child exploitation. You can find her at FrancieHakes.com. Francie, long time, no here, but we need you now. Weigh in, Francie. Well, Nancy, this is such an incredible relief, and it really illustrates the power of law enforcement when everyone, federal, state, and local, are all working together to find one little nine-year-old girl. That is the very best that this country has to offer. When a nine-year-old girl goes missing, everyone moves heaven and earth to find her. And they did find her. And Nancy, as you know, as a former prosecutor, just like me, we don't like to say cases are slam dunks. We never like to say that because there's almost never really a slam dunk. But that little girl was found in his house where he was. This is a slam dunk case, and I'm relieved to see it. To Trace Sargent joining us, search and rescue recovery expert, Ph.D. psychology, focusing on criminal profiling. I couldn't help but wonder about putting the little girl, little Charlotte, in a cabinet. You know, she didn't go there on her own. Yes, Nancy. Uh, In this regard, when we talk about a situation like this, and in any situation where someone disappears, particularly if they're females, we look at the victimology of that individual. Her being a nine-year-old female alone put her at the highest risk of victimology. And in that situation, he saw uh, a crime of opportunity, so to speak. We don't know for sure if he was stalking her, her family, if he knew her and her family. But the essence is he saw an opportunity. He took advantage of it. He also understands that he is committing a crime, a very serious crime, and he doesn't want to get caught. So how does he prevent from getting caught? He hides the evidence, so to speak. In this case, it is uh, the little girl, Charlotte, and hiding her in the cabinet either from his mother or from others or even keeping her in a contained environment where she can't escape. Maybe she tried to get away. We don't know. So that provides a lot of situations, uh, goals and objectives for him to hide her to contain her and to keep from his crimes being found. Now, very curious. Uh, we know that there's a kidnapping charge right now. We don't know if other charges are going to be added. I also have been told that the parents do not want her health information to be released. What does that mean? It could be a lot. I want to go back very quickly. Scott A. Johnson joining me, forensic psychologist, 32 years specializing in addressing predators just like this at ForensicConsultation.org. Scott Johnson, thank you for being with us. Um, quick question to Alexis Therese, CrimeOnline.com before I go to Scott. Alexis, do we know whether Charlotte was clothed or unclothed at the time she was rescued? The police have not said what she was wearing when she was rescued. They have only said she was locked in a cabinet, which, and she's, she's a tall girl. You know, she is five feet tall. She's only nine years old, but she's five feet tall. She weighs 90 pounds, which is nothing at all, but she is tall. So imagine this t- you know, tall girl stuck inside a cabinet in a trailer, which cannot possibly have something too big. 
But, you know, this was only, I want to point out, this was less than 20 miles away from where she was taken. This in the Moreau Lake State Park. Milton is only 17 miles south of there. So he did not take her very far. So it, it was not far for him to go up there to capture her and snatch her away from her family. It's like a local park for him. That's a really good point, Alexis Therese Chuck. Chris Eberhardt, Fox News Digital. Uh, 20 miles from Moreau State Park. But how far was his camper that he's got parked in the back of his mom's place? How far was it from the family home? Uh, between 10 and 15 miles. It, it was close. Uh, and actually, uh, I think, I think see, from what I've seen and heard before, I think she's some, I've seen him before in the neighborhood or something. Um, so there was a, a little bit of familiarity. Wow. That's the first I'm hearing that. Okay, tell me what you know about that. And we understand that this may change. It may not be correct right now. I know that you're getting information from neighbors and relatives and your ends at the police force. I get it. But are you telling me that she thought there's a chance that she thought she recognized him from her neighborhood? Right. That, I, and I'm glad you, um, you you clarified that. Again, this is nothing official from police or, or anything like that. But uh, there, there was some talk that she has seen him before. Um, but again, that's unconfirmed from anybody else. But it would be interesting because when you go um, that area where she was from Loop A in that park, it's very close to the street. Um, and that it's only separated by uh, a very small amount of grass and then a fence that you can literally just step over. So the curious thing is if she did know him, maybe she went over closer to the fence where it was easier for him to get or did he jump over the fence? That we don't know. But again, that was the theory that some of the residents were were pointing out and especially given the close proximity. Loop A, close to the street, just separated by grass and like what, a chain link fence? It's not even a chain link fence. It's hard to describe. It's like a, um, it's like a, a rusted, very brittle, like metal type fence. And I mean, if I wanted to, I could just step on it and it would just crush underneath me. So how tall is the fence? Uh, it took me maybe about 15 steps from the road to get to that fence. How tall is the fence? Uh, came up to right about my chest little lower than my chest. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, I'm trying to figure out, Scott A. Johnson joining me, forensic psychologist, how close the defendant lived to her, and I'm understanding that was about 10 miles, and Jackie's showing me a note that the home was about 30 minutes to the campsite. Is that what you're saying? So now that we hear from Chris Eberhardt, unconfirmed reports, she may have seen this guy in the neighborhood, not to know him, but to see him like I would know the grocery store checkout guy or woman. I would know them because I see them all the time. That doesn't mean I know a lot about them. I might remember their name from their tag on their shirt. But that type of familiarity, that may play into this. And it's very hard for me to believe. And anybody on the panel, jump in. Uh, it's very hard for me to believe that he lived the defendant lived 15, 10, 15 minutes away from her home and he had never seen her before. That he just happened like a needle in a haystack that's happened to be the same girl he kidnaps at a campsite. No. Correct. He likely has seen her in the neighborhood and the opportunity presented itself where he could abduct her, but this was something in the making. He likely already had planned to take her. He likely already knew where he would take her.
Um, and so when we catch these people, there's usually that element of, you know, the planning that comes out, you know, that this wasn't just a, uh, happenstance victim. This was someone that they had seen in the community and had already developed sexual fantasies for and, or uh, the possibility for ransom. Guys, uh, I'm just very curious. Scott Johnson joining me, forensic psychologist. This is rare for us that we actually get a stranger-on-stranger child kidnapping resolved with the child alive. Alive. And I've been besieged with questions, was she raped? Was she attacked? I don't know the answer to that. But I know this. She survived. She survived. That hardly ever happens with stranger-on-stranger child kidnappings. Scott Johnson, I'd like to get in, if you can, the mind of the perp that would take a child with no thought to what it's going to do to the family or the child and end up forcing her into a cabinet. And this guy, I mean, it's the proverbial guy in his mom's basement. This is a guy living in a camper in his 40s, 46 years old. In the back of mommy's yard. Right. And so you have someone here who's, if you will, psychologically regressed. He's not mature enough to meet people his own age. He's fantasizing about younger people who he can more easily control, subdue, um, without having to invest a lot of, for example, relational communication skills. And so to, to abduct her means he's got his wishes fulfilled as far as, uh, you know, he may not be a child specifically uh, focused on that age of, of a victim, but this happened to be the victim that he found, but someone that he could easily control, subdue, and then perhaps the secondary gain here of of trying to get some money, which obviously money was an issue for him living in a trailer on his mommy's lot, but uh, someone who's very psychologically regressed, and unfortunately, the things that they could do to their victim in their own head um, are, you know, kind of get horrendous. Guys, you are hearing Scott A. Johnson. What more do we know about this guy, Chris Eberhardt? Does he have a job? Did he work? Did he function normally? Uh, at first, it came out that he was a sex offender. That's not true. That must have been a different uh, Craig Ross. This guy does have a record. Thank heaven. Or we may not have had his fingerprint. So there's a lot swirling right now. And we don't know the truth of any of it. All we really know is she's alive. And it was in his camper behind his mom's place, which leads me to another question. Mommy didn't know there was a little girl in the backyard being held in a camper. So that's a good question. But what more do we know about this guy, Chris Eberhardt or Alexis Terrestrial? Anybody jump in? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm doing today. I'm actually up here right now. Um, um, while I'm talking to you, I'm driving over to the, the, um, the house right now. It was all blocked off last night. Um, they had a cop block in that entrance of the Barrett Road. Um, I also do want to just let you know, Nancy, um, I did get a response back from police and they have said that authorities so far have found no connection between Ross and the girl's family. It doesn't mean that they haven't seen each other in the neighborhood or something like that. But um, as of right now, the official is that there is no connection. That's important. Hold on. Let me write that down. It's no connection between him and family. 
Okay, I get it. That doesn't mean he hasn't been skulking around her neighborhood, driving around. We know he's got access to a car. And you know what? We called it yesterday. She was taken in a vehicle. Why? Because dogs did not pick up her scent. In addition to search, rescue, and recovery, Tracy Sargent also is an expert dog handler. That's how I first met her. And I tried to trip her up every way to A to Z with her dog. Could the dog find this? And we did experiments. I did experiments to see if I could trip her and her dog up. Not one worked. I tried hiding drugs inside of meat. I tried hiding it in different places. I tried drugs in bags. I tried all sorts of things. The dog never messed up and neither did Tracy. So Tracy, what do you make of what you're just hearing? Well, Nancy, uh, what happened with the dog situation is classic. So I have actually worked these very exact scenarios where Someone uh, disappeared, and in fact, the runaway bride was the one that I worked that came to mind where my dog tracked her uh, route, and then it stopped. And I advised the officials that it appears that she got into a vehicle here. I don't know if it was willingly or unwillingly. So what they did with that particular resource, in this case, a canine resources, which are great resources in these kind of situations, told them a lot of things. They told them that, listen, she didn't get off of her bike to go into the woods, use the restroom, to she saw a rabbit or a butterfly that that encouraged her to go into the woods to do some exploring and maybe she fell and hurt herself. The dog told them what they needed to know, and that was, this is not a uh, in, in, um, innocent situation where this girl walked into the woods. It appears by all accounts that she is in a vehicle. And a nine-year-old, in most cases, are not going to get in a vehicle by themselves. So that increases the danger and the safety and the concern level um, very much in this kind of situation. So the dog was a great resource, did exactly what they needed to do, gave them the answers that the officials need to really transition instead of maybe a missing lost child to a missing endangered child. Or Charlotte being in one of the many bodies of water there at uh, Moreau State Park. You're absolutely right. That trail just ended, which told everybody that it's in this business that she was put in a vehicle. Is there a connection? Take a listen to this. Was the suspect known to the family? It has not been determined that the suspect was known to the family. Who's that? That is what will be revealed after more extensive questioning. Uh, the vehicle registered to the suspect. The address in the database was two miles from Charlotte's home. But it is not known at this time whether he knew her or had her under surveillance for any length of time. Stories with Nancy Grace. Christopher Eberhardt, Fox News Digital. We are hearing Hotchell saying that the defendant's home registered in the, you know, DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles database, was two, one, two, two miles from Charlotte's home, not 
10. Have you been saying two all along and I thought you said 10? Uh, well, the actual address that we're, we're given is is uh, between 10 and 15, but that trailer is probably, it, it could be closer. I understand. I understand. The vehicle registered to the suspect, the address in the database was two miles from Charlotte's home. Right now, we don't know if the defendant had Charlotte or her family under surveillance. The family is saying from our sources, that there was no connection between them and the defendant. What, if anything more, do we know about the defendant? The fact that he lives in his mom's backyard in a camper. Uh, do we know anything about him having a job to Alexis or Chris? What about it, Alexis? What, who is this guy? He, we do not know that he has a job yet. He, as you can see from his mugshot, he has a beard and a mustache and, and unruly hair. You know, maybe not a job where he has to go into an office every day. But I'm just speculating on that one. Um, we have not been told anything, and no coworkers have come forward. And also, to want to point out, his mother has not been arrested yet, so she may not have known what is going on. She may not have seen Charlotte. She may not have heard her. She obviously didn't call the police to report anything. So he is the only one from the property so far that has been arrested. I believe if they thought she had anything to do with it or knew about it, that she would be arrested. I agree with you, Alexis Terrestrial. You know, I keep asking, what do you know about this guy? Has anybody thought to mention he has a past arrest for aggravated harassment and criminal obstruction of breathing? Now, see, I never heard of that. I had to look it up. It's a New York State Penal Code law when you obstruct someone's nose or mouth. That is in his history. They are arrests. I don't know that they're convictions, but he's arrested for those things. Okay. What about it, Chris? Uh, you know, you just tipped me off because I had not heard that one before. Um, I, that was... Um, that's what I'm working on today is, is trying to piece together who he is, um, if he did have a job, what he was doing, um, any criminal history. Um, also, to try to find out if his mom was even home at the time. We, that, we don't know either. Guys, uh, we're telling you what we're learning now. Uh, and it could be confirmed or debunked. Because at the beginning, isn't this true, Alexis Tereschuk? It was reported everywhere that this guy was a registered sex offender with two attacks and I believe it was on young boys. And that turned out to be a completely different, maybe same name or same variation, a variation on that name, but it's not this guy. But we are learning that this guy has these arrests, we think. What do you know? Originally, the, everybody was under the impression that it was a man who was 51 years old. He had an arrest. He had been arrested for sexually assaulting young boys. So he was a registered sex offender. That is not... So far, what has been revealed about Mr. Ross, who has been arrested, he is 46. His own, his arrest was for a DUI. And then you are saying that this criminal breathing. Now, the thing is, the police have not revealed that. I have not seen those. Well, I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's the Saratogan, the Saratogan, which is a news outlet. In 2017, a Craig N. Ross was arrested for obstruction. At that time, he was 40. Of Corinth, was arrested April 21, charged with criminal obstruction of breathing, which is a misdemeanor. Also, a Craig N. Ross of Corinth, arrested in 2016 for second-degree aggravated harassment. Do those dates jive with being this guy, Chris Eberhardt? 
If he's 40 years old in 2017? Yeah, the dates would jive. Like I said, uh, that, that's why I'm, I'm being a little cautious on, on what we say about him, just because we're, we're still piecing it together. I mean, uh, going back to what you guys were talking about before, where they originally thought it was this 51-year-old sex offender, it was a wild circulation on social media because somebody, a sex offender, was talking about the case on, um, I don't know which, which social media out, um, platform. But that got picked up by a lot of places. Um, I don't know if he was trolling news outlets. Uh, I don't know what he was doing. But uh, that's where a lot of that confusion came in. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm being, you know, a little cautious and, and making sure that we piece together everything accurately. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I just want to clarify one thing with you, Chris Eberhardt, Fox News Digital, who is actually in his car right now heading toward the scene. You're telling me. And I want to clarify this in my own mind because I'm trying to work up a scenario of what happened. You're telling me the defendant's home is about 10 miles from the victim's family home. Is that right? That, that's the way that I have it. Yes, correct. Okay. All right. Hey, maybe you know more than the governor. That's absolutely possible. Guys, I want to jump forward uh to our cuts and I, I want to go to our cuts 28 and beyond but first Francie Hakes 15 minutes 15 minutes and Crispin I want you to jump in on this after Francie she was on her bike doing one more loop around the campsite we've been told that loop was about one third of a mile how many times Francie have I gone camping, RVing with the twins? John David always wants to take his bike, and he does a loop. One more loop. And usually, I go out and I walk the loop while he's riding his bike. And these are RV parks all over the country. But sometimes, he would be out of my view. Sometimes, he would come back around the loop behind me and pass me again. In 15 minutes, she was gone. Francie gone. Yeah, Nancy, it's a it's a shocking coincidence, but I wonder, it really makes me wonder whether he whether or not he's stalking the child will eventually find out because I'm sure the police are right now exploiting all the digital media, computers, laptops, iPads, phones he had at his house to see if there are photographs of this child, for example. But he might have been just stalking the location. That kind of campsite, like you said, you and your kids. Lots of people take their children there. So it looks like what we would call a target-rich environment. So I'm sure police right now are doing a forensic, sometime today we'll be doing a forensic interview of that child to find out exactly what happened, the kind of things he said, whether or not the mother was present, whether he mentioned the mother to the child. She is an incredibly valuable witness, not just what happened to her, but what she says he told her and how he took her and whether she recognized him. But I suspect we may find out that there are images of children from that campground because I think he's probably been set up there and waiting for the opportunity to snatch a child. Okay. Robert Crispin, final thought. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to final thought is um, real quick. Uh, I had a you know, I'm coming up from, um, you know, like the border of New York City and Westchester County. So I called up a profiler just to try to get his thoughts real quick on the whole case. And he thought it was interesting that uh, she was taken after her friends left. So maybe he was waiting for an opportunity. Maybe he was looking at her. 
And uh, then all of a sudden, that last loop she did by herself, the other ones were her friends. And then on that last loop, she's by herself, and that's when she was taken. That was kind of an interesting thing that I've kept in the back of my head that she told me. Chris, Chris Everhart, you are so right. It's, it's like the hyena, uh, Robert Crispin, at the watering hole out in the Serengeti just waiting for the the youngest or the the slowest the most infirm gazelle and then when the, all the others leave he attacks that one he waits for just the right moment it's like a jackal listen the window to grab her was very small and he took it but a collaboration between local state and federal officials and technology today solved this case and brought this girl home to her family where she can grow up and be an amazing woman and have kids and be married and just enjoy life. A collaboration of everyone came together. All I can say is PTL. Praise the Lord. Goodbye, friend.